uh, Philemon this morning. And um, next week, uh, Drew's going to take over for a, a season. He's going to teach, and then when he's done, I'll teach, and we're going to tag team. And um, he could, he's going to uh, start us in the book of Acts. So if you want to start reading ahead there, that'd be great. But Philemon we're going to look at this morning because it's, uh, you know, Paul wrote a letter to Philemon when he was writing the letter to the church in Colossae. And um, I don't I don't know how much time lapsed between the time he dotted the last period uh, of Colossians and he started Philemon. I'm not real sure what the time frame there was, but we do know that he wrote them both at the same time and, um, and, and sent them to be delivered at the same time. So let's just read it, uh, verses 1 through 25, and um, we'll get into it. So he starts out with his greeting, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apaphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to me and to you. I'm sorry, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me, your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So 
you know, we here you got this runaway slave Onesimus, and we don't know why he ran away and um, from his master Philemon. But some people say it's because Philemon was this harsh taskmaster, but I I just don't think that could be the case. As we looked at last week, you know that that um, Philemon Philemon being a Christian, he wouldn't have been as harsh and 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 evil and hard and wicked towards his slaves. So I don't really think that was it. I think I shared with you last week that, you know, John Newton, uh, slave uh, captain of a slave trading ship, that once he was converted, before he quit that altogether, slaves heard about, you know, the the torture that was on, on these ships and, and that Newton tortured less than the other people. So they wanted to be on his ship, you know. So Christian... Uh, owners, I guess, um, you know, would be not as severe on, and, and the slave, I have a hard time in my mind separating, you know, the slavery that we had in our country versus the type of slavery that was going on here. It was very different, okay? It wasn't, you know, the the uh, crack in the whip and all that mess that, that happened, and I mean, you can see the devastation of that even i mean we're we're back there again aren't we i mean here we here we go again and and um as i said a few weeks ago if there's any doubt in your mind of how wicked and vile and horrible that whole situation was there's a, a book called 12 years a slave and um you know it it's a it, it's a worthwhile read um if you can stomach it to say the least right but anyway written by the guy that was uh solomon northrop i think was his name and uh written by him but so i I don't think that finally um onesimus left because of the harshness but what is more probable is that that he was lazy he was ungrateful and he was dishonest and he saw an opportunity to go right he saw his chance to make off with a big chunk of of his master's savings, perhaps, and and um, and so he grabbed and fled, and and we don't know how he made his getaway. You know, people that flee from the law or from whatever, to me, it always amazes me with their getaways. You know, but whether it was under the cover of darkness or in in the guise of a business trip, you know, the the direction of his flight was very predictable, though Rome. And one commentator said this. This is really good. He said, uh, maybe he fled to Ephesus where he purchased some handsome clothing, which would identify him as a well-to-do man of the road. Then he hopped a ship bound for Rome, disembarked at the Italian port of Putolio, and made his way to Rome where the historian Tacitus said, all things horrible and disgraceful, disgraceful find their way there. That's not the reputation you want to have of your city, is it? The commentator continues, There he he melded into the dark, sordid world of alias names, lawlessness, and immorality, and there he and his money were soon parted. You know, I I am always amazed when when I flip on the news or, or read, you know, of, you know, somebody committed this crime, they did this, and they're on the run. Do y'all ever follow that i mean it's so weird to me the patterns that some people take you know first off if you got tattoos all over your neck and your face 
you know, you probably ought to consider whether or not you want to do this and then run. It's kind of obvious, you know, hey, there's our man. But, you know, some people flee to the cities, you know, and, and try and hang out. Some go to the woods. I was trying to think of the longest that somebody's been um, that that I've followed. And I think it was that the uh, Olympic bomber, you know, the Centennial Park bomber. He held out up in North Georgia for he he was a good while. Wasn't he? I don't does anybody remember how long it was. Yeah, I think it was just within the last few years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So have you ever thought what you would do if somebody were looking? You know, I mean, not because you committed a crime, but maybe, you know, maybe if things switched, you know, and, and they're coming after Christians now, you know, where would you hide out? You know, would you go to the woods or would you go to the city? But it's just amazing to me how people do that. You know, and they, nowadays the carjacking is so prevalent. You know, you just, you steal one car and run it till it runs out of gas and then you hold somebody else up and steal their car and you drive it. That might not be a bad way. You know, you're always in a different car. But anyway, um, regardless, you know, Onesimus was, he was in big trouble now. And he was guilty of two capital crimes, running away and theft. Both of those were huge because they, they were capital crimes because they were they were sins against the the, the entire social order because the Roman Empire thrived on slavery. You know, so he, he's bucking the system on both of those and, and he, he was in big trouble for running away and stealing. And really rebellious slaves of the time, they could be killed. Or at least, I think I shared a couple of weeks ago, if they weren't killed, they were at least branded with an F on their forehead, which meant fugitive or a CF, which is um, the Latin word I'm not going to try and pronounce, but it means beware of thief. Now, think about that, you know. So if you've got a brand on your forehead, fugitive, you know, or <clears throat> beware of thief, <clears throat> you're going to have a hard time conducting yourself in society, right? I've often thought um, in, in my life as a believer that if somehow I could have something like this on my forehead, right? So that y'all could know my thoughts. You know, God knows them, and that scares me, but I can hide them from you, right? I mean, think about that. You know, you're, you're somewhere, you know, and, and you have a bad thought, and then so it's scrolling now. So everybody that's looking at you <laughs> sees it, you know? I mean, that's what it would be like to have this brand. And, and I've often thought, you know, Lord, if I had that, maybe I wouldn't, sin as much but that's not true is it um you know and that reminds me of back in in colossians when we we talked about at the end of chapter two where where the uh how do you say it the ascetics ascetics you know the gnostics and ascetics were coming up with all these rules and regulations and paul ends up saying they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So even if I had that digital sign on my forehead, you know, letting you all know my thoughts, that still wouldn't, I'd probably, I might be more embarrassed that you saw it, but it really maybe wouldn't stop me, right? It might be a hindrance from time to time if I thought about it. But so anyway, you, know, you can't get away with much once you have that on there. And theoretically, Onesimus could have gotten both. 
You know, if, if his master was in, a, if Philemon was in a good mood, he could have gotten both, both those brands, but also he could have been killed. That was very real. A, a contemporary uh, to this letter of Philemon was written by uh, Padanius Secundus, a wealthy Roman. Uh, he was he was murdered by 400, uh, I'm sorry, he was murdered by one of 400 slaves that he owned. So as that guy was being prosecuted, the prosecutor came and said, uh, this is according to a report by Tacitus, the prosecution argued that we kill all 400 of them. Guess what? Prosecution won. You know, so that the sin of that one guy got 400 people killed. So Onesimus is, I mean, this is serious stuff, right? To be, to try and pull off, but nonetheless, he did it, and, and, uh, uh, he could have gotten both of those. So he was in immense trouble. Slave hunters were also out there. If you owned slaves, you could, and, and some of them ran away, you could go and hire a slave hunter, and they would go and go after and see if they could find them. So you had to disguise yourself really where, really well. You'd have to come up with a fake name and fake IDs and, and all of that, you know, and disguises of whatever the... Uh, they could got those um, Groucho Marx glasses, and you know, for the older people here, the younger <laughs> folks don't know Groucho. Anyway, um, interestingly, though, how in the world did he come across Paul? Think about that. You know, you got this guy that's in immense trouble, and and he's he he comes across Paul. You know, the only thing I could really come up with, I read some accounts of this, was that he was down and out and he'd maybe heard of Paul's name being discussed among some people that he was associating with. But whatever the case, he he kept returning over and over to Paul in the jail and eventually his life was changed. Now, in Christ, everything to him was totally transformed. And in that, this just, this whole story of this guy is just an amazing short story, if you will, of, of the amazing grace of God to change a life. You know, you got the think of how we've just painted his life and now he he gets saved. And, uh, uh, you know, there was a drastic change in his life, which is what is true of Everybody that gets saved, right? I mean, as much as you cannot, uh, you cannot deny birth, right? When when that baby comes out of the womb and it starts to cry, everybody knows that there is a new life here, right? Because I mean, there, the evidence is there. So, can you be born again? without there being evidence. I don't think so. I think there just has to be, you know, and that has troubled me deeply over the years of being a Christian, of how churches today, I mean, it's Sunday morning in the United States of America, and I mean, I guess millions, multiple millions, I don't know that I'd say tens of millions, but multiple millions of people are gathering in churches today in our country and are they really born again? You know, can we tell? You know, um, I listened to 
Well, actually, I read more than I listened to. This morning, a, a tweet from this guy, and I can't remember the name. It wasn't Wretched Radio, but it was one like it. And um, he had five snippets of um, these preachers that are just absolutely destroying God's word, and people are listening to them all over the place, all over our country, and claiming, um, you know, um, faith in Christ through these things. And so it's always a challenge to me, you know, when I'm witnessing to somebody or I'm counseling with somebody to really hammer that point home, you know, and we don't know people's hearts, but we absolutely can tell the difference between an apple tree and an orange tree, right? Why or how? One of them's got apples and one of them's got oranges, you know? And, and so can you absolutely tell the difference just based on, you know, again, we don't know people's hearts, but their, their actions show their hearts, do they not? So I guess I'm just troubled of why people gather, millions gather on Sunday mornings. And if there were tens of millions of true born-again people, would our nation be in the shape that it's in? I just don't think so, right? And this was troubling me so much one time. I was taking Nicholas Ellen, if you all know him, that comes to our counseling conferences, and I was taking him to the airport, you know. So I asked him, I said, Dr. Ellen, you know, you know, I was really referring more to my program, you know, that these guys come in and all claim to be born again, and, and but I don't see any, you know, the baby's not crying, you know, something's wrong. And, uh, um, you know, he and I said, but again, you know, how can so many people gather in churches week after week after week after week after week? And, you know, and he said, well, you know, first off, uh, God created us to be, you know, social beings. So we're naturally gravitate towards people and, and I've, I've thought that you know if we if we went up here to this gas station and just two of us guys go up there and we we start a fake fight you know and cars are driving by you know what within a few minutes there's going to be people in that parking lot watching you know why is that you know because we're we're attracted to when we see more than three or four people all huddled around. That's why prayer circles work in, in downtown areas. You know, you get a group of people and you stand around and you start praying. If you're not bowing your head, that, you know, you're not giving it away and it draws people in, you know, and you can start sharing the gospel, just kind of talking to each other, but people came in. And that that's that's how it is, right? That um, So that's why country clubs work. Because people like to be with other people. And, and so th- perhaps that's how um, Onesimus, you know, he heard people talking about Paul, even though he was chained in a prison. There were always a lot of people around him in that cell. That had to be an interesting thought. You know, you got all these other prisoners in here, and they don't have four, five, six, eight people hanging around their cell. What's up with this dude? He's got this uh, John Mark and Luke and Demas and all these guys hanging out. What's going on there? So maybe that's how he got him, got him to come. I don't know. But one thing is for sure, you know, his new faith, uh, it, it grew. And um, he became one of Paul's devoted disciples. And uh, in his imprisonment, he started, uh, while Paul was imprisoned, uh, Onesimus was running errands for him and 
you know, probably talking with other people about, hey, you need to come hear what this guy's got to say. So they, they became close. And once he grew the conviction that he has to go back and be reconciled with his uh, with Philemon grew also, right? Y'all, you know what that's like, right? And um, you know what? Some, uh, in all honesty, I hate that sometimes. I can't stand it sometimes, but that's my flesh that causes that part of it. And there is a verse, and maybe, maybe Onesimus heard this, this verse just gnaws at me. It, it gnaws in my, what does the King James call it, in my bowels, right? In my inner Tim. It just gnaws at me. And maybe Onesimus heard this and he knew that he had to go and, and be reconciled. And it's the verses I'm talking about is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. You know, it's that you know that you have to be proactive, determined to make things right. And, And I think that's what was going on with Onesimus. We don't know if Paul said, hey, dude, you got to go back and, you know, or was it just the scriptures that were working on him as he heard or, or, you know, these things being talked about. So a perfect opportunity presents itself now for him, right? You got Tychicus was planning to depart to go back and uh, he was taking the letters to Colossae. And um, when Onesimus indicated an interest in returning Paul then included this letter to Philemon on his behalf. And as we look at this, this letter was was the most brilliantly nuanced, compelling letter of reconciliation in all of ancient history. You know, it's just amazing to me how, you know, they had all these other writers, you know, philosophizing and all this stuff back in this time period. But you got Paul. And empowered by the Holy Spirit speaking, you end up with these just earth-shattering little letters. And it wasn't only the best for then, but it can help a great deal with us as well as we work through uh, enhancing our human relationships, especially for those in the church, right? And and, um, I think it's... Listen, Kent Hughes says this about it. He said, um, in light of the magnitude of Paul's apostolic office, he could have assumed a tough guy approach. He could have written, quote, Phil, this is Paul writing the boss apostle. I've got this guy here, Onesimus, and he's converted and, and he's doing really good. So don't give him any trouble when he comes back there. If you do... I'll be over to see you. We have a little Latin saying here in Rome for people who don't go along with the program. It begins with jerkus. You can fill in the rest, Philemon. Now, you wouldn't want that said about you, would you? So get with the program so long, pal. Paulus Paulus Maximus. (laughs) He could have said that. He had the authority to do that, right? But that's not Paul's way, and it's not the Christian way, right? And, I mean, just take that down to our uh, 
closest personal intimate relationship that we all have if we're married, and that's in our marriages, right? A husband can't start barking off to his wife in that manner. If he does, he, you know, the submit to me, God made me the head over you, you know, that's like taking a roaring bonfire and throwing gas on it. You know, we need to gently ease in, you know, in in our conversations like that. Um, So Paul's way wasn't that way. So notice what he does first. He he uses tact, T-A-C-T. Has anybody got a definition of tact? I was in the Army for seven years from 1972 to 79. And I don't remember much about it because it was a time of, well, you know what I was like back then. Um, it was bad. Vietnam was winding down. It was just horrible. I was a horrible person. I remember one thing very clearly. I had a captain one time that said, Sergeant Brown, you need to use some tact with that young man. And I said, as if I wasn't a young guy, I was a kid myself. And I said, well, what, what do you mean by that? And he said, tact is, being, is building a fire under somebody's rear end without making their blood boil. Isn't that good? The fact that I remember that, you know, and that's, you know, that's a good parenting tactic if you think about it. You know? So anyway, Paul uses great tact in dealing with this whole situation. Look what he does in verses 1 through 3. He cheerfully greeted Philemon and, and his family by name. A New American Standard, I like, well, I'll read uh, ESV says, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. I think the New American Standard has the word brother there, doesn't it? To Philemon, our brother. And Apaphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he, he, he is cheerfully greeting them personally, brother, sister, fellow soldier, right? He's not coming down with some heavy condemnation on them. He's, he's, Kind of, he's using tact and warming them up, I guess you could almost say. And then secondly, he comes with sincere compliments in verses four through seven. He, say, he, uh, he says in verse four, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. In verse five, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And then in verse seven, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. Because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So he's kind of building him up, right? And then in verses 8 and 9, he affirms uh, that his attitude was not that of a dictator. Look what he says in verse 9. He appealed to Philemon for love's sake. And in in addition, he mentions that he he was old and in jail, which is kind of, again, I think, appealing to Philemon's sympathy, if you will. And then lastly, uh, he, he, uh, uh, as he gets to the point in verses 10 and 11, he uses some unexpected humor, making really a pun on Onesimus' name, which actually means useful. He says, uh, there, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. There was undoubtedly, you know, some playfulness of words there, but he nonetheless is is really being compassionate in his communication here. So at this point, 
he's 145 words into the letter of 335 words, and this was the first mention of Onesimus, which is the main subject of the whole letter, right? <clears throat> it's the main, um, and, and he's been lighthearted up to this point. So his example teaches us something really important, I think, that in, when we go into reconciliation, that we have to take time and reflect on where people are, you know, how they're feeling, you know, wh- what kind of problems have they got going in their life? How, how do we perceive them and what's going on with them? And um, I think that Christian sensitivity uh, is fundamental to reconciliation. Some people, and, and I know some people like this, and sometimes I think, I, I think this is, I think this is fundamentally wrong, but sometimes I want to go there myself because I can get it over with. But sometimes people jump straight to the problem and, and so they can not have to worry about communicating with us and getting close with us, and then they can be done. You know what I mean? Just like, boom, slice, dice, go. You know, and I, I just don't, that's not what Paul does here. You know, he, he, he is being very relational up front. And uh, I think we have to choose our words carefully. Uh, some people never give a compliment without being very negative, using backhanded compliments at best. And Solomon gives us an example of that. In Proverbs twenty five eleven. he writes, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. You know, and I, we can't get in the mindset of I'm coming in with my words. I'm going to blast and run. Right. That's not what Paul does. We can't do things that way. I think many times our flesh wants to so we can be done with it. You know, again, back to husband and wife. You know, if I've offended my wife, you know, the the and I know I got to deal with this. Well, let's just get it over with. You know, that's not the way you do it, right? And uh, some people never, you know, never see it that way. But, I mean, you got to love those words like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. So human reconciliation runs on on a loving track, a a loving tact is used. Um, and, And we need to master that in our lives. And so then next in this attempt to affect uh, reconciliation, Paul described uh, to Philemon his own intimate relationship with Onesimus. We see this in several key words he, that are prudently used throughout this letter. He uses the word child, heart, brother. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. I think he describes him as his child. So to call to mind one of the most precious, intimate of human relationships, that of a parent and a child. You know, Paul was bonded to him, even though he just got to know him. He, in Christ, that bond was made. And he, he reached for an equally strong expression in verse 12, where he says, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. So he uses the word child and my very heart. And interestingly, the Greek word for heart there is not the normal cardia, which we get the word cardiac, but it's, it's an entirely different word that includes the ideas of, of feeling and compassion. So there's more to it than just the, the, you know, the organ. It's, I'm sending part of myself 
Um, I don't know, this just popped into my mind. I, Sunday mornings at 7 o'clock, there's a show uh, called, uh, it's by this cowboy, uh, Red Stegall, somewhere west of Wall Street is what it's called. And it's really good. Today it was on the Longhorn Cattle Trade in Abilene, Kansas, right? But while I was getting to that station, I was flipping, and I see this doctor, this guy dressed like a doctor, white um, robe and had on surgical gloves and there was a, I guess, uh, supposed to be a person in front of him on a table with a white sheet over him. And he fires up a chainsaw. And and he and I thought, what in the world? I didn't know what was going on. I just That's the image I was seeing. And he starts like putting the chainsaw on the supposed body there, you know, and kind of faking it, like he's cutting it, and then he turns the saw off, and he reaches reaches down, then the guy's name came on the screen there. It was a pastor. He, this was his sermon. And he reaches down, and he pulls this, I guess it was a cow heart or something, I don't know, but he pulls this organ out of whatever was laying there, like he just cut it out. We're going to do some work on this heart, you know, but it's like, wow. I told kid, I said, could you imagine Shane, you know, cranking up a shell on but that you know we aren't talking about that kind of a heart here we're talking about the the feelings and the emotions that and the compassion that we have for other human beings um i I think it's kind of that does it just tug at your heart to see to be anywhere it happened to me uh yesterday when i left this conference i was at and there was a there was a lady um at crossing this busy street with three precious so cute in their little summer dresses that crossing the road you know that that feeling of just compassion you know you know what i'm talking about that you you know that you just you know you just have when you see pictures like that so you know that's how paul was communicating to him he, he says i'm sending you part of myself that's what he's getting at I'm sending part of myself. And then in verse 16, he used another emotive term in describing him as, look at this, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So Paul could hardly be more forceful. He, Onesimus was his child, his heart, and his brother. And, and what we can learn from this is this indispensable foundation for building relationships. Reconciliation has some things, I guess you could call them cousins, linked together. Intimacy, closeness, fellowship. You know, those thrive when believers are expressing their true feelings. Not hiding them, expressing them. I, You know, I loved what, what Tim Ryan said a, a few weeks back when he was teaching you know for the guys it's okay to cry when you're when you're in a relationship with another brother or sister with like this right we we just want to come in there and surgically cut everything and put it in it it's not going to be that way right when our when we're intimate and close and have true fellowship with people in the in the body we're going to have our true feelings are going to show forth and, um, you know, I think that others know how we feel. And then guess what? That comes back, 
right? It comes back at us like that. Um, you know, there's an amazing trait among people. We think, I don't know where we get this. I say we because I'm with it. We think we can, you know, that people can read our minds. Can't, right? If I don't tell you, how are you going to know? And that's key in marriage uh, communication, right? Daniel, Melissa. Uh, <laughs> you got to talk, right? And the other person has to listen. You know, do you ever wonder why we don't have just holes in the side of our head? These things are designed to take sound and funnel, right? God knew what he was doing when he gave us us. We got to listen. So, you know, Paul here, um, he, he wants to indicate something of how he felt is the bottom line. His choice of language left no doubt in Philemon's mind. He couldn't think anything other than this guy cares for Onesimus. This guy cares for me. This guy cares about this, my relationship with Onesimus being made right. So he says in verse 21, uh, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Wow, even more than I say. Paul believed Philemon, so he expected good things to happen. And, and he, he knew he could move forward with him. But uh, go back for a second um, verses 15 and 16, and I think he, he kind of baits Philemon with the potential of soul-satisfying relationship that awaited him. He says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So he was a double brother to Philemon in the flesh and in the Lord. And this, I came across a quote that just really, years later, um, it um, explains this, or it did to me anyway. This, Abraham Lincoln had this in mind when he was, uh, when he answered Thaddeus Stevens, who was demanding destruction of the enemy at the end of the Civil War. Stevens said, we have to annihilate. Mr. Stevens said, Lincoln, I do not destroy my enemy when I make him my friend. Isn't that good? Um, reconciliation makes our enemies our friends. And finally, note his promise to pay all of Onesimus' uh, expenses. Verses 18 through 20. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So Paul writes uh, what we would call the equivalent of an IOU, right? He put his money where his mouth was. I'm confident this guy is going to do right. Um, so um, he, he didn't leave any doubt of how he felt or Philemon would have no doubt of how Paul felt about Onesimus. And at the end of the story, um, Onesimus and Philemon went to even lead more productive lives from here. This, this reconciliation, this reunion was really, really blessed. And I, I think, uh, interestingly, Paul challenges him. He says, uh, 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 when he says that, this was quite a humorous reminder that 
Philemon owed him, right? So he kind of flips the terms there a little bit, right? Philemon, you owe me. Take him back because you owe me. But um, it turns out, um, interestingly, is that his, this historical evidence of this is that, that 50 years later, when Ignatius, one of the great Christian martyrs, was being transported from Antioch to Rome uh, to be executed, he wrote to certain churches. And in writing to Ephesus, listen what he said. He praised their bishop Onesimus and making the same Pauline pun on his name, right? His usefulness. And, and isn't that also Onesimus went back to Philemon, reconciled, then he turned him loose and said, you know, go minister, basically. And um, the runaway slave becomes the bishop of Ephesus as time goes by. Isn't that awesome? You know, I mean, that's one of the greatest stories in all of the world of the gospel changing somebody's life and, and of the church. And, but, you know, each one of us can be that, right? I mean, each one of us, we, we maybe didn't steal and run away as slaves, but we were equally as condemned, equally lost from God. And, and you know, we don't know what God can do with one changed life. I was reading something the other day, and it said... Um, uh, can't remember how eloquently it said it, but instead of trying to think and mess it up, I'll just say it my way. You know, shortly after anybody in this room dies, nobody's going to remember us, right? I mean, maybe a year. Ah, you remember that old guy, Tim? You know, you know what I mean. Just, but what does go on? What we did for Christ goes on and on and on, and that caused me to think of the guy that led me to Christ. You know, he died 10, 12 years ago. But, you know, since then, or maybe even longer than that ago, since then, you know, the Lord blessed me to have a ministry house that, that I was able to share the gospel with people from all over the country that have gone back to who knows where. And and that's that guy's. Nobody remembers him. He was a tree-cutting guy. Yeah, I remember that guy that cut my trees. You know, nobody talks about him like that. But think of the spiritual legacy that he left behind. And the only thing that matters in our lives is the impact that we make for God's kingdom while we're here for our short little, what, 70, 80, 90 years, right? Some of us may hit 100, but anyway. It's all part of, you know, God's tapestry, right? And as it's woven together. You know, you've heard that old thing. You can look at a tapestry from the bottom and you think, what a mess. You know, but you look at it from the top, the way the master designer that put all that together made it, and what a beautiful thing it is. And that's God's church, and that's the reconciling of relationships. So we've got this Onesimus. It turned out to be very profitable, and we can really learn from that. So any final comments? Yes, sir. our culture, you know, everything is so, I guess, uh, 
know, with technology and social media, it's it's more like you know, bang, bang, bang. You know, go in and, and get things done and move on. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I, I feel that in my own life that you know I'm very much that way. I guess because life is so busy, and so you feel like you have to just knock things out. And so I think you just, for me personally, I got to step back and mm-hmm. make time for it. Yeah, yeah, and it's a lot more personable when we do, isn't it? You know, it really is. It's it's much more personable to young people plug your ears, but it's much more personable to talk to someone than to text them. Right? You know, texting the gospel. You know. Although technology's great, don't get me wrong, I talked to a lady yesterday that told me about an app you can put on your phone. So if you're in a restaurant, like take a Chinese restaurant for instance and and you start, you know, talking to somebody, you know, well, what, oh, do you speak Mandarin? Well, no, I really like this dialect a little better. And then they go get your drinks. This app, you type in that dialect, and it's got thousands of them for these different languages, and it's the Gospel of John. And uh, you have them listen to it, you know, Chapter 3 in particular, right? And that's cool, you know, that's technology, but... Uh, by the time we learned those all those languages, we'd be gone. But yeah, I think that's huge to know with relationships to get personable with people. So, any other comments? If not, thanks for your time.